listeners and welcome to a new episode of the David Crude podcast. My name is Brett Lawton. This is our first episode for 2020 and I'm very excited to be sitting here with John Matheson. John Matheson was the National Public Radio's correspondent in South Africa from the US in 1986 to 1991. His byline has appeared in the Washington Post, New York Times, The Observer and Financial Times UK, among others. In 1985, he delivered the U.S. Secretary of State's Open Forum Address critiquing U.S. policy towards South Africa. So we're very excited to be hosting John Matheson because he recently launched his new book, Cyril's Choices, Lessons from 25 Years of Freedom in South Africa, at the David Crude Bookstore. His first book, God, Spies and Lies, Finding South Africa's Future Through Its Past, is one of the most useful explorations of how South Africa adjusted from an apartheid regime to democracy. His latest book, Cyril's Choices, has just been released and it is a pointed review of the highlights of economic, military and foreign policy and the need for reform. So after a fantastic launch on Tuesday the 28th of January 2020, John has offered his time to come through and share some insights on the book. So welcome John, thanks for being here. Pleasure to be here. Great. So I think maybe we can just start with an overview of your first book and what inspired you to write the second. Well, the first book uh, was a much longer book and it was really a way of trying to understand what happened in the apartheid era and the transition to to democracy and what happened in the democracy era. Uh, and, and it had an emphasis on politics, but also uh, at how, how uh, th- through the eyes of journalists and editors, often between the lines, the stories and the relationships, the sort of things that you wouldn't be told at the time that indicate how we got here and what the real flavor of those times was. This book, I really want to focus on the last 25 years because, you know, it's no secret, we're in a slump. We've had 10 bad years of state capture, but it's even deeper than that even before state capture we had real problems in south africa we you know the elephant in the room the big issue is jobs if you do a survey of what voters care about most the top thing that comes up is jobs there's such a high jobless rate in south africa and so i really wanted to understand how we didn't create jobs nearly as fast as as a lot of our BRICS partners did, for instance, and how we can fix that. Even at the launch on Tuesday, you did mention Russia and China and their role coming to South Africa and doing what we haven't done ourselves. Would you like to elaborate a little bit more on that? We're letting Russia and China eat our lunch. (laughs) And uh, but let me take a step backwards. You know, this book is a a, a return to uh, some themes that I was looking at in the early 90s. By 1991, it was already clear that both South Africa and Russia, which had just got rid of uh, the Soviet Union, would be redistributing their assets fundamentally, the the ownership of all the major economic uh, institutions, or, or many of them. And I really found that very interesting and exciting, and I wanted to understand how it would work. So I studied Russia, I went to the University of Chicago for a while, and I went to Russia. And uh, I I got some very interesting insights, and then of course I was actively involved with the Mandela government, and uh, a journalist and so on. And then I wanted to, so, so in the last year or two when I was working on this book, I wanted to return to that to understand how it happened. And of course Russia is so interesting because Basically, under Yeltsin, the government decided that they were going to get rid of all the state enterprises, get them out of state hands very quickly to prevent communism ever ever returning. 
And the people I studied who had read, who, who made those decisions and took those actions under Yeltsin knew it would lead to a lot of corruption. And they thought, well, that's the lesser evil. And so they did deals with various kinds of insiders, some deeply in the Communist Party, some in the intelligence services, KGB and so on, uh, and got rid of them all very quickly. And I mean, to give you an idea, they tried, I mean, I think they were well-intentioned, uh, but of course I think they did underestimated the long-term damage of uh, corruption because, of course, state capture, really, that, that term is really identified first and foremost with Russia since 1990. And the, the first step to get, getting rid of state companies was to issue every citizen in Russia with a, a voucher, which would be a share in a company. You can't appreciate how bad the humiliation of Russia was at that time. I mean, I, I, uh, when I was in Russia in the middle of 1992, you saw people holding up a single sausage for sale or a babushka doll, or, you know, people were really on the brink of starvation. And um, in that environment, these vouchers to the average person meant almost nothing. And so they diminished in value and uh, they, was, they were sold for a bottle of vodka and so, you know, at times. And I have this quote, the vast majority of Russians had little more than a passing hangover or a few rubles to show for 70 years of communism. So that's what really happened. And then there was a second wave of selling, which was equally compromised, in fact, even more compromised. But the consequence of that is you had the rise of the Russian oligarchs. And why is that interesting for South Africa? Because, of course, the Guptas under President Zuma were South Africa's oligarchs. Oligarch really means someone who's in business but has enormous political power. And I don't think you could study the Guptas without uh, concluding that they, that, that they fit the definition perfectly. What happened by the end of the Zuma uh, administration was that the interests of certain of the second wave of Russian oligarchs came to be aligned with the Guptas. And you could see the Guptas as, in a way, the second wave of new wealth in South Africa after 1994. So there were real similarities, and these were the people that Zuma and, and the people around him befriended in Russia. It's really interesting comparison that you've drawn. Um, so through your research, is a lot of it done through personal experience or personal knowledge of the role that these people play? Or where, where do you um, find the research for your content? It's a combination. You know, I'm, I've now been around a long time. I knew Mandela uh, since he came out. I, I trained Mandela for television. I, I knew all the uh, leaders of the ANC since Oliver Tambo, in fact, whom I met abroad. And I knew all the South African uh, Prime Ministers and Presidents since John Forster. Uh, so, so I know a lot of people and I know them in, in, in a number of camps from my work as a journalist, political journalist and a foreign correspondent. But for this I went and did a lot of reading. I, I, I read a lot of government reports so you don't have to uh, because uh, some of them are very dull and some of them are of varying values, some are of lesser value. But what I did discover is um, that there's a lot of information in government that is never acted on. Sometimes their reports are not valuable, sometimes they really are, some of the consultants do good work, some of them do really awful work. Uh, but the consequence is there is this material, but then a new minister comes in and what do they do? They commission a new report. So people aren't uh, absorbing what's already out and applying it effectively. 
And so I looked at that. I looked at uh, where we got and what the mistakes we made in the military, how the arms deal impacted our ability to fight battles, because we still fight battles, you know, in Africa. And what has our foreign policy achieved for us? And then preeminently, what have achieved, we achieved with our economic policy? And what I concluded is there is a solution. There is a way to create inclusive, job-creating, rapid growth. Um, there's a way to do that. It's been done by the Asian Tigers. Both the ruling party and the DA talk about some elements of, of, of the solution, but often they, get, they got, get too hung up, in my view, on the issue of the state's ownership of businesses. The ANC and the Communist Party want the state to own more. The, uh, the uh, DA and uh, some of the other opposition parties, want, uh, including Tito Mbueni, the finance minister, want the state to own, own less. And I'm making the case, and I think it's very well documented in, for those wishing to study it, that the ownership isn't the key thing. I mean, frankly, uh, the state probably does own too many things, but there's a case for ownership of some things and not for others. But more important than that is the state's role, not as an owner of, of state-owned enterprises, but as a facilitator and a driver. It's more than facilitation. The state needs to determine what are the opportunities that will create rapid growth and job inclusive growth and uh, with with high job creation and those opportunities are there and we're really missing them mm. calling it cyril's choices i mean you're speaking of state and all those decisions do you think um cyril will have an, a direct role in implementing any of these as i was writing the book of things changed a lot of course i started it while president zuma was still president there was a lot of hope for, for uh, Ramaphosa, which I shared. I've known him a long time. I, I have a high regard for him. Uh, he's, he's a principled man. He's got good common sense. He, uh, he's got a lot of experience in a wide range of areas that are key to doing the job well. But of course, I, like most people, I did not expect the fight back to be as strenuous as it was. And not only that, the way that the government has been hollowed out, so many of the skills we used to have are no longer there. Some that were there through the Mbeki period, some that weren't even, were, were, were lost even at that time. And so the way we have to look at President Ramaphosa's role in the future, I think, has to change. And now I think we see it that he is a necessary but not a sufficient condition for us to turn this, this uh, economy around. And I'm saying that every citizen has to be involved. By the way, what Russia doesn't have that is a major asset and that we have is civil society. Civil society in Russia has been devastated, even before Putin, but particularly under Putin. Journalists have been killed in high numbers. NGOs are, are, are weakened and eviscerated. In South Africa, it was civil society, the journalists, the NGOs, the court actions, opposition parties that led to, and then finally the election, the local election of 2016, where the ANC suffered and made a defeat. And that was the cause of Zuma's demise. And now we have to see civil society as an asset and we have to really mobilize it in my view. And this is what the book is really trying to do, help do, is, is to mobilize the country to understand that there are solutions. They're not hard to find. They're hard to implement in the sense that they take political will. You have to be willing to stand up to vested interests. 
and some of them are corrupt and some of them are honorable, but, but they have to be intelligently but firmly engaged. And that's what we haven't done enough of, and that's what I'm hoping the book will help do. Yeah, that alludes to your conclusion for the book. And then also, you spoke a lot about the fourth industrial revolution and the emphasis on green power going into the future. Could you maybe just touch on a little bit about how you think that's going to play a role in us going forward? Yeah, I highlight two things because I've looked at the Asian tigers and and where they succeed was when they decided they found the right growth drivers for the times where the global trends keep changing. You've got to keep up with them. You've got to figure out what are the the things we can do as South Africa. And I I, uh, focused, I mean, there are many things you can look at. I looked at mining and so on, but, but I focused on two particular things where government intervention would not be too complicated and could produce enormous rewards. And neither of them is the fourth industrial revolution. The fourth industrial revolution is being widely misunderstood. It is not something that will produce produce millions of jobs in South Africa. The research is there in some areas. It creates jobs in many areas. The fourth industrial revolution will cost jobs. The most obvious example is the fourth industrial revolution includes driverless vehicles. In America, they're already talking seriously about removing every uh, truck driver in America, maybe the Uber drivers. Now, imagine if that happens here. That's a loss of jobs that is very considerable. So, so one should not be starry-eyed about the fourth industrial revolution. It's coming. We can't stop it. We shouldn't try to stop it. But we shouldn't see it as, as the holy grail. The two areas I think uh, uh, we can get quick results, even without having a much more uh, sophisticated, capable civil service, is if we take a firm stand to fix what we didn't fix of the information revolution. Um, information revolution could be called the third industrial revolution. That was really t- computers, t- um, broadcasting and telecommunications. And, and we never completed that process because of corruption, and that includes uh, not going through with digital migration and the other things that would allocate spectrum, which would bring down the price of data dramatically, increase the, the quality and speed of it, and that creates many jobs. And there's a lot of data on that. We need to do that, and we've been delayed. The digital migration of, of um, television onto different uh, digital uh, frequencies was started 20 years ago. It was supposed to have been finished many years ago. Five years ago was the deadline given to South Africa by the International Telecommunications Union, which is uh, a, a UN body. We're five years out, and we, we still see no prospect of it. I think that has to be addressed, and there will be... Uh, some pain involved, but the long-term benefit will be massive. And then the second one is what I what, what you could call a green new deal, because it's much bigger than just green energy, just solar or wind power to replace coal or, or diesel. Uh, it includes electric cars. It includes getting building electric uh, charging stations throughout the country. It includes building up the capacity to make some of our products so that they can uh, be exported through Africa. There are so many major opportunities and it's also a global trend that is not going to go away. I've talked to a lot of people and there's quite a lot of people who say, yes, but how many jobs will it create if we do solar instead of coal? We need to calculate that. And I've looked at studies on that and they're not too bad. 
But that's really not seeing the, the scope of the, of the opportunity. The scope of the opportunity is much greater because one thing leads to another. If you're riding a global trend of that magnitude, you, uh, you, you start off installing solar power, then you start making some of the simple parts of the photovoltaic screens that you use, then you make more of them, then you export them, then you become part of global value chains. And Africa, we, we now know there are several respected reports saying that Africa is going to be the major area for energy growth in the next uh, few decades. And we and that's where we, we're letting everybody else eat our lunch, because we should be in that game with at least green energy, if not other things. And yet, in fact, Russia has built, has, has signed contracts with well over a dozen African countries to build nuclear. What that means is that Russian technology, Russian know-how, Russian jobs, Russian influence, and Russian profits will be uh, made in Africa for a generation. And then the Chinese are moving in, and they are selling green energy throughout Africa. So we should be in that game, I would suggest, with green energy particularly. But we are an economy of a size and capacity that could be in that game. And we go to meetings and we're, we're glad and uh, all our BRICS partners, but they eat our lunch. <laughs> yeah, and it's not even like a matter of us trying to keep up. Now we've got to catch up, so we're going to need all the help that we can get. Um, That's right. But yeah. if you get the policies right, the, 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 the uh, investment will come. You know, the, I don't think you should see investment as an abstract concept. People, if you say, why aren't people investing? It's, they're not, inv not investing in uh, South Africa. They're not investing because they're not finding an opportunity that they feel confident will make the money. And these are opportunities that they will support because they will see money-making mm. prospects. No, 100%. But then also, it's not all um, like doom and gloom, though. I do think you touched on some positive prospects for us going forward. Well, I think those are the positive prospects. Yeah. I, mean, I think they are there. I think what you do need is the, the, the re relationship between government and business has to change. You know, I studied Japan first because it was the first of the Asian Tigers. And I, this, I was doing this in 1991-92 at the University of Chicago. And the interesting thing was when that what the Japanese found by trial and error was when business was too powerful, they got away with murder. They never fixed things in the national long-term interest. When st the state was too powerful, the same thing happened because they'd ride roughshod over business and demand things that were unrealistic. The moment at which Japan was really well placed to take off was when the state and business were of roughly equal power. So that the state would come with ideas, but they had to have some market-conforming component to them. You know, you can't just come in and say you must beneficiate jewelry or something. Uh, why would they do that? Well, will they do that? Is there a reason? Is there a, an, an investment case? But if you're sitting around a table and business says, this is what we can do. By the way, I think in mining, the opportunity is really on what they call upstream. In other words, the manufacturing of all the products that machines and other kinds of bits and pieces that the mines use. South Africa has a tradition of that. It's been declining. We could grow it again. And that's the sort of thing that would come out of a discussion with this. The, the business might say, well, look, beneficiation isn't working for us, but this will. And if the state says, okay, well, I don't mind if you create the jobs another way and we'll give you the following support to do it and we'll, we'll cut the red tape to have, have it happen. That's how you get good results.
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know what? I think this book really touches on a lot of um, relevant themes that people are thinking about right now. And it's fantastic that it's come out. And our audience is very excited to grab a copy. And we wish you all the best with the continued promotion and the launch of the book. Are there any prospects for a potential future publication that you'll be releasing? Well, yes, this one's just out. There will be another one, but, okay. not, but not yet. Okay, fantastic. And also, so you're self-published? Oh, yes. I have my own company. It's called Ideas for Africa. But I publish in partnership with an author's collective called Missing Inc. And that's the imprint you'll see on the on the on the spine, (laughs) and uh, that includes people like Peter Dirk Ace and Brent Meersman and others, and we help each other to self-publish. And it's it's not for everyone. Uh, I mean, I'm still a great believer in publishers. I would never be able to read what I read if it weren't for publishers. But uh, for certain writers, self-publishing can work very well, and in my case, it really has. My first book did enable me to live for a couple of years off it. Um, by self-publishing so they're real advantages but but as I say not for everyone. <laughs> no but it's good to hear and we at David Kirk Bookstore and Publishers we obviously support uh, self-published authors um, and we're very honoured to have your book on our shelves. Thanks uh, well I, I'll have to come to you for my next launch. Good thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the David Kirk podcast. The David Kirk Podcast is a production of David Kirk Projects. David Kirk Projects has locations in Johannesburg and New York. It is an alternative arts institution dedicated to encouraging and raising awareness of careers in the arts and related literature and media. It also promotes contemporary culture in a dynamic, collaborative environment. In Johannesburg, David Kirk Projects has exhibition project spaces as well as adjacent bookstores located at 151 Jan Smuts Avenue and Arts on Main. David Kirk Workshop produces fine arts editions with William Kentridge, Diane Victor, Deborah Bell and a number of other artists that are both South African and international. For more information on David Kirk Projects and our artists, visit our website at www.davidkirkprojects.com. Follow us on Instagram as well as Facebook and Twitter. You can find more episodes of the David Kirk Podcast on Podomatic, iTunes as well as our website.